You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. 7.7 FM program reflections and uh, I'm your host Zubair Akram with my guest Sheikh Ridwan at the moment and for the audience of uh, primarily for Glasgow we are on Facebook live and also on our website rr365.co.uk uh, Alhamdulillah we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who's enabled us yet once again to be in front of you and reflecting upon uh, the message that he the Almighty uh sent us through uh his beloved prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam surah anbiya is uh, the the surah that we have been discussing uh, in last 7 to 8 odd days and inshallah we aim to continue it uh, during this uh, blessed month to understand and reflect on the underlying themes uh, of this surah uh we will go for today's ayahs and uh its translation and comment from Sheikh Rizwan In the name of Allah the entirely merciful the especially merciful Amittakhadu alihatan min al-ardi hum Or have men taken for themselves gods from the earth who resurrect the dead? Had there been within the heavens and earth gods besides Allah, they both would have been ruined. So exalted is Allah, Lord of the throne, above what they describe. He is not questioned about what he does, but they will be questioned. Sadaqallahul Azim. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to Reflections and uh, just getting straight into these ayahs, sorry, without any um, conversation prior to this. Surah Anbiya. Uh, we want to cover as much as we can today uh, of this and there are some themes, some some of the things that I would like to discuss once you have started the commentary on this one. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So, Surah Al-Anbiya, chapter entitled The Prophets, starts off with them, um, as we've seen, a warning to people and then a discussion of the psychological, I would say the psychological state of the people that have disbelieved immediately in the vicinity of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Quraysh, this is a Meccan chapter. So we'd imagine the the interlocutor to be um, from the, the people around the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam at the time who were in enmity and in opposition to him. And so what we find is the psychological state of their opposition is is laid bare for everybody it's incoherent it is confused and it is not in any way making any inroads into um, dis- disproving the nature of the prophet sallallahu as being a prophet and every single you know line of attack i would say that they brought against the prophet sallallahu is dealt with very clearly and calmly in the quran and so ideas about having angelic prophets having you know prophets that um you know are you know will live forever as in fact the chapter will continue on and talk about this about the prophets being immortal and having to taste death every soul will taste death and prophets are no different from that all of those are givens that prophets are human they are um, exactly like ourselves from one aspect but from another aspect they have this inspiration which is wahi which is an inspiration which then raises them beyond what we are um in terms of our conception of them and so then the next major section of this um chapter which is going to go on for about 10 verses or more is focusing in on not um their arguments against the prophet as being a true prophet but now it's just bolstering up the main tenant of this this section we said before that this chapter is essentially about the major belief 
um, tenets of Islam, which is the unity of God, monotheism, um, the belief that this message is brought to us by humans who are prophets, and the general and insurmountable accountability of human beings to their Lord. So essentially, you're created with a responsibility. The prophets reinforce and re-engage with humans to tell them that they're responsible. And then there'll be a time when you'll be responsible immediately and uh, ultimately, which is the day of judgment. But that, you know, that 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 um, responsibility also carries on um, while we're listening to the message as well on earth. So we have to act as if we're responsible human beings as well. Um, you know, anybody you would, anybody you speak to has to uphold some sort of code of morality. It's a given. I mean, you know, the people that claim that, you know, you don't need religion to have morality. You don't have to have mm. teachings from outside ourselves to have reality and, and morality, sorry. Even those people, when they say that they're living a moral life, so say, for example, as an atheist that says they're living a moral life, if you if you if you scratch under the surface of their life, what they're actually following is what they've been taught by their own upbringing, which is usually a religious upbringing, which informs them of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what is what's virtuous and what's not virtuous. So what they do is essentially steal, you know, even if they don't admit it, they're stealing the ideas of great religious traditions and saying, well, I'm I don't believe in God. I don't need to believe in God to be a moral person. Reality is you do. You know, that morality that you have has to come from something. Otherwise, you're like, you know, it's like, you know, Crime and Punishment, the famous novel by Dostoevsky. He says, you know, in, 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 in one, one of the monologues, you know, like one of the main characters says that if there was no God, then you could do what you want. Mm. You know, if there's no God, which means no one that sets the, the ultimate criteria for what is accepted, what's not, what you're left with is... Um, an idea which is essentially um, what's most convenient at the time for you as an individual, that's what you'll do. So what you'll do is, and say, for example, in life, you've got to make a decision now. You've got two or three options. What you will make a decision on if you don't have a religious moral compass is that you'll say, okay, what's expedient for me at this moment in time? What's easy for me or beneficial for me? Now or in the kind of long term, that's the decision you'll make. But religion, what does it do? It always comes up and says, um, yeah, it might be good keeping that, but it's not yours. And ultimately, even if you make use of it, there'll be a day when you'll have to answer for that. And so because that moral thing is so important and it affects how you, how you live and how you interact with people and it affects how you oppress people and honor people, the monotheism, which is the belief in one God, Tawheed, as we, we explain it, is so important that this chapter is going to explain it to us in a very important way, which is to basically say and there has to only be one God. Otherwise, think of having two gods, just from the moral perspective. So you will have a, a life choice, whether to swindle or not to swindle, whether to tell the truth about what you're buying or selling or not, whether to, you know, be completely open about your educational background or whatever it is. Um, one God says, you know, be truthful. Another one says, do what makes you happy. Mm. You know, you, um, you have to be happy because at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself. And so you're, you're caught between two gods. And so that's just in, in the context of, you know, when you're referring to what should I do now? Where's your compasses? You've got two compasses now. Imagine travel, trying to, you know, I don't know if you've ever done, um, what's that stuff called? That you, when you get a compass and you're in the, in the wilderness, um, it's not... Orienteering. 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 Imagine you've given two compasses which have completely different bearings. And the, the world axis, the, the, the magnet, magnetic axis is actually two. There's one that's a positive axis and negative axis. And you're supposed to sort out where to get to in the end. You won't get to one place, you'll get to two places. <clears throat> or even if you're told to get to one place, you won't get to the place because you'll be navigating through two different systems. Both so anyone, who, anyone who's not religious is confused. Is that what you're saying? Anyone we'll who's religious is being disingenuous if they say they're moral and right and correct and living a good life. 
because they're not being totally transparent to themselves and to you because essentially they're stealing religious ideas. Mm. Otherwise, without, what, you, what you're left with... Sometimes without even knowing that they're doing No, this. no, they know. I mean, they, they come on. I think okay. if, you, if you got them into a corner, they would know and they would accept it. And they would say, well, it's, it's okay now. It's, do, it's doing well for where we are. And they'll probably say like this, what Richard Dawkins, he said that incest, for example, he said, I can imagine a, a period in the future where it'll be perfectly natural. Mm. And the only thing that's holding him back now from, you know, and society now is just the, the, the inherited shame and, um, yeah, the inherited shame of that from religious sources that's just prevalent in society. That's what he'll say, which is such a disgusting proposition. But essentially, the only thing that's stopping him is that he's got some kind of remnants of this um, religious Christianity that stops him from saying it's okay. <clears throat> you know, something like killing innocent people. He would say in, in, in one kind of context, it might be efficient, it might be proper, and it might be more pragmatic to kill innocent people for the greater good, for example. Mm. Now you can imagine, I mean, th essentially this is what, you know, a, a, a case where... So what we're saying is that if we deny ourselves from a religious knowledge or wahi, uh, revelation, mm. what we're saying is we're going to only, we are only dependent on our own instincts. And this is why... And people the, the, yes, people exactly. who say that, people who say that, are actually being disingenuous because they aren't following their instincts. They're actually stealing ideas without saying they are from religious sources. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when this has been put to those people that say, well, you can live without religion and religion just makes things complicated and messy, when they're pushed, okay, so we're, we're, tell, tell us about your um, brains, you know, your, your, your clever ideas. Mm. Just, they come from ideas that are have their source in religious scripture all of them is it the case that they are kind of uh, put off by the emphasis on small print all the time by religious people yeah that's that's a different thing i mean if they don't like the fact that religious religious teaching sometimes when you know religious people are overzealous and too enthusiastic and they tell me you have to follow all these small small details you obviously do lose the, the bigger picture of what the whole purpose of religion is. And I think that's a fair point um, where, you know, people, even religious people get so engrossed in small, small details that they actually lose the purpose mm -hmm. um, of what's being done. But more importantly, you know, when you're explaining to somebody, you know, if you get engrossed in the small details that you, you're talking about, if you, if you explain to somebody why you follow religion, you know, when they hear you, you they will hear from you the importance of following these small, small things. And you won't know why you do them except for the fact that you're told to do them and you find it therapeutic and rewarding to do them. Now, for that person, it won't make any sense. See, the person you you, you tell about the fact that you take in, into consideration all these small details, mm. a non-religious person will be very confused. But they'll, they'll say, yeah, that's for you. fine for you, but for me, it's not the big question. And so what the Qur'an does, it goes all the way back to the big questions, two or three mm -hmm. questions, and it just presents them in so many different ways. And this, in fact, is you know the reason I got caught up in going wherever I'm going now is because it's actually to do with Tawheed and this inculcating of the fact that Tawheed is the basis of morality, the basis of not taking... And so the Qur'an says, have you not seen the person that takes his own... Nafs as an ilah Takes themselves as the ilah In other words, the judge and jury of everything And so mm -hmm. What the Quran is going to say here is Now, you know, all forget the, the You know, the issue about the Quraysh With the Prophet they don't like Who he is, they want an angel That's just um, a, a side Distraction, that's a, a side show They're just mm -hmm. putting that up for for no reason Let's come back to the main topic Which is Tawheed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, um, So, okay, let's have a look at the Quraysh. Have they taken idols or gods that they've created from the earth themselves? Think about it. The Quran will just make a, a complete mockery of this. It will say, okay, have they, are these the same people that have taken, taken meaning, 
meaning created, formed, you know, taking the mud and the water, mixing it up, putting it into a shape, and then essentially then the Quran was okay. Okay, let's just accept that they've created this God. Is that God that's created from this earth going to bring things out of the earth? Whom you Is it even logical mm. that these things that they're creating from metal, say they create from metal, ice, dates, um, stone, sculpted out of lead, gold, for example, anything, essentially <clears throat> they're still from the earth, unless you bring one from Mars, still from Mars. Are they going to then bring the dead to life? Oh. They can't even sort their own existence out. So what you're left with is, you know, okay, or we're just doing as an image. You know, come on, an image for what? You're creating the image. You're creating, you're, you're, you're imbibing the power into these inanimate objects. The meaning is that they're still subservient to a greater God, even in your own lie about God. They're still minor gods. Mm. And Allah says, okay, what's the problem essentially here is, first of all, they can't create anything. They can't <clears throat> resurrect. They can't create themselves. How can they recreate anything else? Allah then says, one of the most famous verses in the Quran, لَوْ كَانَ فِيهِمَا آلِهَةٌ إِلَّا اللَّهِ لَفَسَدَتَ Now, if you think about it, if there was more than two or two um, gods or godheads except for Allah, you know, meaning on the earth and the heavens, لَفَسَدَتَ They would have just come to um, complete destruction. <clears throat> Now think of anything, you, you speak to, you know, you go to a village, just go out of Lahore to go to a village mm. and tell somebody that there, we're going to have two um, two governors in this city, in this town who are going to decide. That's it, Destro destroyed. You know, you yeah. know in Pakistan you have this idea of Chodrahat, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many <laughs> there, are many there, there are many claims Only one survives Exactly So everybody in, I guarantee in Lahore there's lots of Chaudhrys walking about mm. And essentially that's why it's in such a mess Oh it's not <laughs> No no <laughs> okay. you, you, look, if you look, if you look at politics Modern democratical systems Four years or five years now, if there's ever a, if there's ever a system that is systematically created to create havoc within a within a society, it's that, where the short term, especially I'm talking about like the environmental issue, for example. There's no long term planning in economics. There's no long term planning in, in terms of in terms of environment or or morality. Essentially, what happens is that you have short term plans to reelect politicians on short-term promises and the system itself is one where everybody wants to be the, the, the leader everybody wants to be in charge and so at least at that in those kind of systems at least one person has the ultimate sovereignty to decide or a system for example supreme court if something is brought to the supreme supreme court in a country then it essentially is going to be the what dictates but imagine there was two supreme courts mm. Okay, or two presidents with equal powers. La fasadata. There's such a basic thing that if you're saying that there's something worthy of, of worship, first of all, okay, let's just say, okay, we're worthy of worship. You're worthy one, you, you worship one in the morning and one in the evening, or you split it 50 50 in terms of your time. Or let's, let's take it deeper than who decides what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what is virtuous and what's not virtuous. Again, again, are they going to agree on it? Are they going to disagree on it? So why complicate it? So I understood, right? So, so the, the two different scenarios. I'm looking at some of my, well, uh, some of the people I know, some some of my friends, um, gone through the same schooling, and uh, you, you end up meeting them in your later years, and uh, some do not want to admit they believe in God. Mm -hmm. That there is a God, and then forget the reason of if there were two or three or four, there is none. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then the next stage is um, oh, there is some kind of devolved powers, and you know there is a God, and then there is another one, and there is a, a subsidiary, and then there is, um, uh, you know, they the, the share power. 
Mm. As as in, so that's these are two different things. Yeah, the, no. The, the the first thing is obviously like Imam um, Abu Hanifa here in his Fiqh al-Akbar when he discusses um, aqidah and creed and what belief is starts <clears throat> with the fact that there is one God, and you know he doesn't provide provide a proof because it's 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 considered to be evident and and not required that you prove that God exists. What he did try and um, explain was that there's only one God, there's not more than one, which is this verse is the perfect, the, in, in Islamic theology this is called Dalil uh, al-Tamanu', which is the, the, the proof of mutual hindrance, which is proof that this is why you cannot have more than one ilah, one more than one God, one, one, one creator, one sustainer, because you know, who created this the initial creation? That's the cre creator, that's the sustainer. Um, the issue of not believing in God is, is a very complicated one and a modern one. It's not an, it's not an ancient one. The, the the lack of belief in God is a very in, modern thing. It's got to do with other things. It's not to do with God. It's got to do with essentially, I mean, if you look at it, the people that speak in the name of God. The problem is with the Reformation, Counter-Reformation in, in European history. It was all about the fact that, you know, the Catholic Church, how can they decide who is where your you know place in paradise is how can they sell plots of paradise to you on earth for example the corruption the the kind of the lack of trust people had in, in the clergy and then you had the, the the protestant church as well the countering of that as well so, so purely people can't just keep blaming those who are corrupted in the name of god mm -hmm. By... No, that's one aspect. So I'm going to come to that. So yeah, in, in the over, the, it's a modern, uh, it's a modern phenomena, and 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 the initial pre um, precipitation of that is through the general fact that people want to worship <laughs> God, but they don't want to want to worship God in the way that the structures tell them. The Catholic Church led to the Protestant Church, so that's a perfect example. Or well, first of all, look, we agree that God exists, but we don't want to worship Him like the people tell us. So the Protestants came and they created created their own. Um, system and they had Calvinism and all the different strands that they have there. Now, after that, it's more than about okay. Now you can worship God the way you want to. It's democratic. You can now, for example, you can read the the Bible in your own vernacular in English or German or or Danish. So now at least you have direct access. Whereas in the past, the Catholic Church said you have to understand it through uh, what we would call a peer, you know, a kind of priest. Mm -hmm. And so you were not allowed to access it directly. Now, once they access it directly, now it's a question of okay, does this fulfill my needs or not as a person? Mm. You know, like somebody, you know, imagine somebody now was able to read the Quran themselves now after being told you have to go to the Maulana to read it and understand it. They read it and they say, mm, you know, look what look what's happening in the world. Look at the world wars. Look at the destruction. Look at the killing. Look at the, the the killing fields of Vietnam and, and and China, and it's unbelievable. Over the last, you know, the, the previous century, over 110 million people killed by other human beings intentionally. So you're thinking, and you and the Holocaust, for example, and genocide in Bosnia, and all these kind of things, and you're th sitting thinking, why, why is this happening? And then it's a question of what does religion you know, hope to offer us as a solution to that. And this is where the master stroke of, of um, I think, shaitan came into its own iblis, which is to make people think that everything that happened was to be laid at the doors of religion. Essentially, you know, what do you expect? You know, Germans, Europeans, the First World War, Second World War, all this is just a reaction to the religious religious world within which we're living, and therefore let's get rid of religion. And this is famously, you know, paraphrased into modern culture by John Lennon, you know, the John Lennon um, school of theology and religious religious studies, which is imagine there's no religion or heaven too, mm. heaven above us and, and and hell below us, nothing. And imagine, yeah, we've imagined it. And the whole thing is the imagination of that happened in the century that he was living. It led to that over 110 people being killed, not in the name of religion, but in the name of ideologies that took the vacuum when religion came out of the public sphere. So once you removed religion, you had all these 
essentially movements that were trying to fill the vacuum based mm -hmm. on nationalism, based on race, based on <clears throat> ethnicity. And so you, what you're left with is you have to then come back and say, okay, why, what, what did we throw away when we rejected religion? And this is where humanity is now. They're having to ask, okay, when we told religion get lost, okay, there's a door, leave and close the door behind you. Mm. What did we lose? You essentially lost things like the golden, the golden rule, which is do not do to other people what you would not want them to do to you, which is within Islamic tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Taoist tradition. Yes, the, the allegation normally is uh, from the other camp, from the other side, that religion has been the source of most wars and bloodshed right from the start. Um, allegations from, from whom? From, from people who, uh, the camp that would say that religion is the source. So people who okay, don't so, I mean, let them, let religion. Them, so let fr them. from pro Prophet's life onwards, Mm -hmm. People thought they were religious, very close to the Prophet mm -hmm. Moving on to uh, other parts of, uh, so inter-religious, intra-religious, Christians versus Muslims, Muslims, and within Muslims, there is Shia. So I, I would love to meet these people at camp. I mean, I okay. would like love to have five minutes with the camp because during the life of the, the twenty-three years of the Prophet's life, between two both sides, about a thousand and thirty. People were killed in all the wars that the Protestant took place in, including the expeditions to the Romans, for example. Okay, mm -hmm. and if you take it in terms of human history, we have we have very um, clear data about human history. You know, human history is human history is the moment that we were able to read, write, and think, and write and and document <clears throat> things. We have a record of wars and how many people roughly were killed mm -hmm. from the of the last four thousand years. Okay, mm -hmm. now those statistics tell us something interesting. What did they tell us? They tell us that two about two percent of people that were killed in wars over that period of time, when we were able to write down what hap was happening, died in wars that were religious. Two percent. So that camp that's there saying, and that's a massive camp. That's your major news agencies. That's all your social commentators. That's all your Hollywood stars. That's all your directors. That's all your politicians today. That's what they're saying. And I would love to just sit down with them and ask them about statistics because we have encyclopedic works in English and other languages that have studied war, warfare, death, um, justifications for war, for war, the reasons why war takes place. 2%, just over 2%, probably 2.6% of people who died in wars, died in wars that were religious. And we also know in those wars, if you were to count them, about just over 6% of wars when they were waged and when they were started and when they were fought, they were understood to be religious wars. In other words, they were trying to convert people or they used religious iconography such as a cross or, you know, you know, some kind of imagery that was religious. All the wars that we know about, which is over 94%, 93%, have got nothing to do with religion. And the ones that, if you okay, if say 6%, say that's your proof, that's an extremely poor attempt at proving that religion is violent. You've just, I've just destroyed that. Those wars, essentially were waged mostly by people who used religion as a means of riling up the masses to get what they wanted. So imagine a warlord who wanted to attack another civilization. They said, oh, I know these Muslims, if you just trigger them in this way, they'll get really angry and I can use that to further my Crusades? Hmm? Crusades? The Crusades were, absolutely, the Crusades are one of the few examples where Christianity was the kind of motor to that but even the, even the, even the the crusades i mean if you look at the crusades there was very uh, important elements of the crusades which were just about expansion and and um looting so for example the crusades the second crusade actually ransacked <coughs> constantinople which were fellow christians and so you know if you look at the history of the crusades and you read the documentation of it, it's very clear that the people that are going on these crusades are not very religious people. No, that, that's almost always the case. I mean, very So then you, you come to the conclusion that even those wars, such as, you know, in modern history, like the Lebanese war, for example, between the Shia, Sunni, and the Druze, for example, all these factions, there's still ethnic elements there. There's still economic, political, mm -hmm. geographical elements there that are as strong as just saying 
you know, they ins insulted the companion, such and such, and they don't like saying Ali radiallahu anhu, or, you know, they but insulted the, the Trinity. The, the narrative supplied by religion is so strong, so emotive, mm -hmm. that it, it, a recent, like, last 50 years odd. Uh, well, 50 years ago, actually, but, yeah. You know, okay. the, the last 50 years, I mean, I'm sorry, the last 100 years in, in, in for Islam has been a, a very dark period where, you know, people who write pamphlets have been have been um, dictating the direction of this religion for, you know, that's that's something completely different. Mm. You know, it's, so Islam has become an ideology like other ideologies. And within that, struggle is a major, major theme. Um, and obviously, no, that's part of it. Another part of it is the demonization of Islam generally has focused on a very small minority of people that ascribe themselves to Islam. Anyway, so that's another aspect of it. And if you take those into consideration, I, I, I just can't see the fact that um, as a general principle, even over the last hundred years that Islam has been, you know, kind of, is you know when it started? 1979 is when this whole thing starts to become, um, you know, this is when the, the, Afghan, the Afghan invasion takes place, the Russians, the proxy yeah. war. And so this is where, you know, Iran, I had, I, sorry, Afghanistan, Afghanistan had a, I had a book of Afghanistan, which was printed before 1979. It was in 1967, I think it was. Such a I've still got it in my library. It's a beautiful book about the, the traveling. I think it was a couple of travelers that traveled in Iran, sorry, Afghanistan, and the, the history and the culture and the people. Un, unbelievable and also unrecognizable to what it is like now. Hmm. So the, the the you know the Russians invaded to stop the encroachment of this the Red Wall, the Red Army. The Americans supplied guerrillas in Afghanistan and and the north northwest frontier with arms, money, as a counter proxy war, like what's happening in Yemen, for example, now, but between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and then basically created this demon where you use religion to be, and essentially you said to people in that country, these red people are atheists, you need to protect your religious identity, okay, let's teach and let's, let's promote Islam and all the rest of it. Obviously, they're doing it for their own reasons. And then you have the Iranian revolution as well. Same thing, mm -hmm. and then you have 79, you know, 79 something happened in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, in, in in Saudi Arabia there was the, the the attempt by the by you know offshoots of the the Wahhabi movement um, to establish the claim of Mahdi. Uh, there was the same famous siege in in um, in Mecca to Mukarramah during the Hajj season, just after the Hajj season. So these kind of things events were very important because. They allowed now all of a sudden this, this exotic part of the world, which is the Muslim world, which is oriental and mid, mid, hidden and mysterious and almost like the hippie place to go, you know, like Morocco and all these places to get, you know, whatever. Now all of a sudden it's become at the very center of the geopolitical games of America and the old USSR. And so religion just got. You know, this is why I'm, I'm saying, I said previously, but religious scholars are not the cleverest in understanding the political temperature and what's, who's doing what to whom. Like, if you're being provoked, you have to think, why is the per person provoking you? And especially, and, you, and if you're being used, you have to know why the person's using you. And essentially... I, I, I remember uh, on Radio Ramadan, uh, I, I used to have a program in Urdu uh, on current affairs. And I interviewed was... Who was mastermind of um, Afghan war in Pakistan, General Hamid Kul, many yeah, yeah. times. The, 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 the head of the Secret Service. Yeah, Secret Services. So I interviewed him a few times um, on radio. I'm not sure if you should be saying that. but um, So he was quite pro Chechens at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember, like, prior to that interview, five years prior to that, I'd interviewed him. And you know he he was giving quite a bit of detail of how they are justified in doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then in this interview, he surprised me. He said they should understand whose war they're fighting, and they should stop what they're doing. That was his view on it. So he changed. He he changed. 
uh, at one point. Akulman, I mean, he's he was intelligent. Yeah. The one thing so about he, him, he was he was a very very respected man. Yeah. And very intelligent. And but the thing is, even intelligent people, head of intelligence services, can be duped or mm. pulled into something that is beyond their understanding. And essentially, if you look at Chechnya, for example. You can absolutely understand why it was totally justified for the Chechens to rise up in the way they were doing in, in the in the 90s. But essentially, what's happened now is you do have. I mean, whether you accept it or not, or agree with it or not, is a different thing. But you know, there is so much to learn from the Seer of the Prophet for us about intelligence, using intelligence in these situations that. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ready to, Muslim scholars, I, I think, are not ready to use it, I don't think. My experience of it is that, because if the if the lesson is so clearly in front of you and you refuse to accept it, I only think that that is because you don't, you don't, you refuse to accept that he has, Sallallahu has anything to, of relevance to teach you. Because what you're saying is my, my ego and my reading of things is better than the Prophet, Sallallahu mm. and the absolute, absoluteness of my, you know, black and white view of the world is much, much more clean than the complicated nature of the world that we we are, we do actually live in. So um, pra pragmatism isn't hypocrisy. Pragmatism is sira. Yeah, I mean, it's mudara in, in Arabic. Mudara is mm. to is to it's like in, in harb you in war you have al khidah, which is to to fool people. And to appear to do something that you're you're not doing. That's in war. But in outside war you have mudara, which is to bide your time. Absolutely. But you know what bide your time is? It means there's a time that you can strike and there's a time you just Yep. You're just um not engaged. <clears throat> yep, yep. And in that mm -hmm. time you build. And like in the in the entreaty of Hudaybi, the Prophet just built. He created a system and a time period to over just over two years, which is all he needed, Sallallahu to just create that. But just to create that momentum as a community, that now we are in a time we are biding time. We got to stop, pause, think, build. It's not. A, it's not the time for offensive. It's not the time to raise slogans. It no, is, no. I mean, the people that want to raise slogans, the people that want to raise slogans, and and be, you know, um, let's be very on the front foot and all the rest of it. They have the they have the right. I'm not going to sit here and, and say that they don't have the right. But what I'm saying is, I have the right to my own viewpoint, and I have the also have I deserve the respect as a religious. Um, you know, not myself, but I'm saying as a religious position to not be attacked as being, you know, pacifist. Exactly. Yeah. Do you understand? There's, there's a because the moment that you say that 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 approach is, um, how can you say this without me breaking my fast, which I'm not, I'm, I'm actually broken my fast. Um, you know, I deserve the, no, 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 again, not myself. I'm saying that position of there's a long-term project here. That deserves respect not to be dismissed as be, this being selling out. Yeah, yeah, you know, yes. I, I know exactly what you're saying, yes. Just but because you're I mean, I would, I say in Britain, the UK, for example, I would say almost every Muslim organization has the mindset of that very much immediate you know, almost a newsreel to 24-7 reactionary politics that we have in, in general life, they also feel they have to have that in religious discourse as well. Hmm. So it's not that I'm getting older and I'm getting, you know, just wiser. I think that's the case. I, I've not changed the way I've thought since I was at university. I didn't think, even when I was fiery and loved you know, anarchism as a, as a you know, political movement, I was still very pragmatic because the whole thing is the the, the the Quranic teachings, if you read them in a holistic way, they are pragmatic. They're not revolutionary in the way that people make them out to be. Because they create change does not mean it's revolutionary because that's what people yep. always say, well, look at the change, the inqilab, Islam inqilab and all this kind of stuff. Is this not revolutionary? Yeah, I, look, pragmatism leads to change 
and revolution leads to change, but they lead to different types of change. A revolution yeah. leads to a change which will fall back into another counter-revolution. Yeah. Pragmatism yeah. leads to a change which is generational. It lasts for centuries. And that's that's the truth of history. Building. Yeah, so my, my, my proof is a proof of history. It, it, people that call for immediate revolution and, you know, kind of, you know, conflict and and castigation and and all these kind of things, vilification techniques, they have to understand that that's, that's just like, these are things that pass away in, in, in a couple of months. You know, the, there's water under the bridge in terms of how, how the world moves. If you look at civilizations, how they're built up, they're built up through gradual movement of education, of terbiya, you know, of, of, of really ingraining ideas within generations of people in education. And, you know, like if you look at Nordin Zengi, Abdul Qadir Jilani, I mentioned him yesterday, he, he was an inspiration for Nordin Zengi. Nordin Zengi was the teacher of Salahuddin Ayyubi. Salahuddin Ayyubi basically took all the students from Nordin Zengi's madrasas and seminaries and religious colleges and put them into the army when he conquered um, Jerusalem. That wasn't him, you know, you know, raising slogans in the mosques and then everyone joining him for war. No, they wouldn't have won the war. They wouldn't have the discipline, they wouldn't have the, the insight, they wouldn't have had the training. So that was built over a generation and a half of people who, who brought up their own generation of children who were then with their fathers in the army and in the cavalry, for example. And so the reason we're talking about this is you brought up the thing about you know, religious wars and all the rest of it, the reason for rejecting God in the first place. Yep. Forget two gods one god we don't want any god but the yeah. reality is there's no argument that religions caused violence the opposite religions came if you look at every religion i mean there's a very you can be honest with yourself every religion you can think of at this moment in time which of them calls towards warfare and and killing not as a religion but i personally so i'm do. saying yeah yeah so i'm yeah. saying as a religion i'm saying if you look at no, the scripture no, and no. um Hinduism, Judaism, Taoism, Confucianism, Islam, Christianity, you know, in and of itself, the, the main heading is always peace. Each of them have, absolutely, they have in the second layer or third layer of their teachings an idea of some kind of resistance or even, um, you, you could say, even aggressive, um, offensive military action, absolutely. I mean, it has to. You have to have offensive military options in any civilization. Otherwise, how do you how do you protect yourself from aggressors? You know, if you if you take an army which is bloodthirsty, immoral, you know, savages, and you have no policy to be offensive in military actions, then how are you going to survive? So every religion has to have that as as a practical purpose. So the point is that's not an argument against religion. And the other argument which is against religion is from these people is that. You know, God just lets suffering occur on the, on the earth and, and it doesn't do anything about it. But then you just ask them, okay, do you want angels on earth or do you want free human beings that choose? Do you want people that choose what they do or do you want just robots? Do you want artificial yeah. intelligence essentially running about, running about and ruling the world? Or do you want people that have a choice between whether they break their iftar with a date or, or a glass of water? Mm. Or a kebab or... Or a melon, or you know, or not fast. So the person doesn't fast gets their just desserts. The person that gets use a date gets their des just desserts, and the person that breaks it with water gets their just desserts. Everybody gets based upon their choice. And so if they create corruption and all these things, then that's their choice, and that's the test. So I was just trying to get this eye uh, of fight those who do not believe in Allah. Mm -hmm. or in the last day. So fight those and who do not consider unlawful what Allah and His Messenger have made mm -hmm. unlawful and do not adopt the religion of truth from those who were given the scripture. Fight until they give the jizya willingly <laughs> while they are <laughs> Which translation is that? Anyway, that's sort of Tawbah. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Qatilu. Just take the first word. If, if I explain the first word to you, you'll understand Qatilu. that you cannot continue saying, okay, the Quran is saying fight and kill. It's telling <clears throat> reciprocate in fighting. Okay. Qatil means to do what? It means somebody's attacking you and you repulse that. Qatala 
in Arabic, these forms indicate there's a what you call in English a, a repercussion to something or a response to something. So this is not uqtulu, kill, qatilu. Mm -hmm. What, how is it translated? Just repeat the translation. Okay, so Yusuf Ali, fight those who believe and okay, not fight, in Allah. Fight. The whole point in English is it doesn't mean fight. Ah, that if mean what you understand it fight. to me, to I would take it if it said uqtulu, kill. Okay, here it's saying qatil. Qatil in Arabic essentially means respond to those attacking you with, 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 with killing and fighting or whatever it is. And that is all that's the whole point. It's not telling you and, and also there's, there's a famous a, hadith. But there's, there's a, a condition. Hadith. So it, it's actually qualif it qualifies the command. Fight those who believe not in Allah nor the last day. Yeah that's that's an, that's that's an insignificant um sifa. That's not um that sifa doesn't justify why you're killing. It's it's describing the people being fought, so it's like a wasf, which is um, a description of the people. It's not saying because. Okay, it's not. You don't fight them because they don't believe in Allah. Fight those who have attacked yeah, because, you. I mean, they, they, they are the ones who are, do not believe in Allah at the last day. Yeah, so this is the basic thing of our pam pamphlet, pamphleteering Muslim scholars is that. Oh, this is the reason. If that was the reason, why did the Prophet not kill and fight all these people that didn't believe in God in the last day? He didn't, he they were didn't. specific. And the hadith of the Prophet is actually clearer than this. I've been ordered to kill people or, or fight people until they say, La ilaha illallah. It's the same thing. I've been ordered to fight, not to kill, to fight. And the whole point is that it's their fighting that leads to the response. And so all of these types of verses that are in the Qur'an are very clearly a response to an aggression from the other side which is causing them to fight the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims at the time which requires a response of very naturally fighting again again in, te in terms of, of you know, an offensive war or a defensive <coughs> war. It doesn't make any difference how you, how you frame it. The point is there has to be some kind of reaction. And that is... You know the reality of how the world works. The world works in a situation where you have a set of beliefs and a set of um, understandings, and another group has another set. You live in harmony and peace until the other one encroaches upon your space, and you tell them, "Don't encroach." We discuss, we have um, discussions, you have um, you know treaties, and if they continue to do what they do, as happened in the Prophet's life. In the Quraysh and Bani Bakr breaking the, 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 the treaty with Bani Khuza'a, which then meant that the Quraysh had broken it. And if they break the treaty, then you have perfect right to go to war with them. And this is what happens. Prophet sent um, Sayyidina Ali with the beginning sections of Surah Al Bara'a, Bara'atu min Allahi Rasuli, that there is an announcement of, of um, lack of responsibility now from God and His Messenger towards the people that they had a treaty with in the past because they broke the treaties and so you know all that doesn't it doesn't really kind of unless you take it out of context it doesn't really kind of prove anyone's point at all mm. you know these verses are very clear because even the verse of the sword which is this verse the famous verse of the sword in Surah Al-Bara'a Surah Tawbah that was revealed and everybody knows because of the fact that it's, it's called the verse of the sword you know it led to the death of people that we can count on our fingers. You know, in the terms in terms of people that were killed as a result of that, that verse, when it was revealed and implemented, it was nothing. In fact, we can't even, you know, there's no war took place after that verse. So if the person was told to fight them and lay in siege with them and kill them wherever they, they find them, and you look and see where is this being applied I mean, the Prophet recited it, the, the, the Muslims heard it, they, they taught it, they studied it, and and when they applied it, nobody was killed. Mm -hmm. Now that's historical, that's a historical fact. Now if you take the most violent verse in the Quran, which is that verse, the verse of the sword, and you see it being applied, what you would imagine is, wow, Mecca would be like coloured red with blood. 
and the streets leading it would be covered in entrails of enemies. And Muslims would be running about all over the world killing people. It doesn't happen. Oh. It doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. History shows it doesn't happen. And Sheikh, is that true that these ayahs never in the course of history of Muslims were misunderstood or used by by the majority at the helm of affairs to uh-huh. break, No, there was there was a period. I mean um during the 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 extended you know kind of conflict in, in Muslim Spain you know and the and the constant threat that was faced in Muslim Spain a large group of scholars of tafsir from that from Andalusia like Al-Qurtubi or Ibn Juzay or um Ibn Arabi for example they tended to explain those verses in a much more and Ibn Hazm for example as well explained those verses in a much more aggressive way than the majority of scholars did as a result of the context which was in you know in the 6th 7th century islamic calendar that was based on the history of the, of the of the the times they were in to the point you know that they suspended hajj for you know a long period of time in those areas to mecca al mukarram because of the lack of security and and safety that's a different thing that's we clearly see it as a result of the the times within which people are living and i think if people look back at this century you know muslims if we continue in the in the history of this earth longer than a century they will look at this pre this century from around the the 40s and 50s 1940s 50s all the way to our time now and probably further as a period within which the the context within which muslims were living led to a reinterpretation of jihad which was again out of keeping with the normal way that jihad was understood mm-hmm. and so we don't understand that now but i understand it because i can see it the history will write down and say this was the reasons why muslims reinterpreted the the quran because of the 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 fallout from colonialism imperialism the kind of movements to you know kind of stretch proxy wars in the muslim world such as essentially iraq iran you know syrian conflicts these are all proxy wars of, of types they're not wars the libyan war as well as a proxy war it's pretty pretty clear to everybody it's a proxy war and so we don't understand that we just say josh mein aa jate hain jab din ki baat aati hai or you know we don't think that there is very clever people in corners of the earth plotting and planning and all they have to say to muslims is you know you're being humiliated fight mm. and then muslims have enough um you know kind of cultural markers and a compass where they obviously get into a frenzy about these things within seconds nowadays look at the the demonstrations that can take place in muslim, in the muslim world over something within an hour of something happening you will get everybody on the streets through twitter and facebook and instagram um without any anyone understanding and the an unfortunate thing is if you look back at who's decided it, it'll be some maulana who perhaps doesn't have a complete pulse on how the world works just getting into a real frenzy about something when in fact you need to actually think about something a bit deeper And so within that there's a vicious circle we have 8:33 is the time just now today iftar is going to be at 8:46 in glasgow <clears throat> you're listening to reflections with sheikh rudwan muhammad i'm your host zubair um time just now as i said is 8:33 um we're going on to a small nath followed by a name of prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam uh which is bashir nadir sirajim munir three names and we'll choose one koi saliqa hai roka na bandagi meri bandagi ये सब तुम्हारा करम है आका ये सब तुम्हारा करम है आका 
के बाद अब तक बनी हुई है ये सब तुम्हारा कदम है आता अता किया मुझको दे कहा थी ये पुरखता की किस्मत मिस कदम के कहा दिल हजूर की बंदी है ये सब तुम्हारा कदम है किसी का एहसान क्यों किसी को क्यों बताए तुम ही से मांगेंगे तुम भी दोगे तुम्हारे दर से कदम है अमन की मेरे ऐसा अमल की मेरे ऐसा अमल की मेरे असास क्या है बजुज नदामत के पास क्या है रहे सलामत तुम्हारी निस्बत रहे सलामत तुम्हारी निस्बत मेरा तो एक आसरा ही है सब तुम्हारा कर्म है ये सब तुम्हारा कर्म है मर जाए खनाक बहुत नगर जो मकसूद आशते है मगर जो मकसूद आशते है हजूर के दर so that actually took me back um that took me back to Syria actually Damascus because I, I had a uh um 
I'm sure it was a cassette player that had that gnat <laughs> on it. Okay. And um, my father came to visit me in in, in 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 Damascus, and I went to actually got the the cassette from a friend I met in, in Yemen. So I was sitting there thinking about Mustafa because I met him in Yemen. We fell out because, you know, I, I didn't take care of myself and he got angry with me because my health deteriorated and he, we just fell out because, you know, he said he'd, he'd pick me up in Yemen. I, I I said, no, I'll be okay. And I collapsed in the middle of Yemen and I was in hospital for about four or five days and he got angry with me. He didn't speak to me again. So we met back in Syria four years <laughs> later. And so again, we, we became very good friends again. So my father came to visit and he used to have this gnat on when I used to visit him. And my father, I remember going to dinner at his house once and he had this on. My father loves this gnat, he used to love this gnat as well. Um, so it's such a beautiful gnat because essentially it's all um, extrapolated from, from the Sunnah of the Prophet and descriptions of the Prophet. You know, he says that you, you can say he's a Bashir, you can say he's a Nadir, you can say he's a um, light giving um, lamp. He says, all you know, the Quran is nothing but uh, a testimony to his attributes. So, you know, Bashir is one of these beautiful names of the Prophet because the Prophet himself, when he used to teach people, he used to, you know, Sayyidina Mu'adh ibn Jabal, when he sent him to Yemen, he said, Bashiru wa la He said to him, you know, give glad tidings, which is the name of, which is what the Bashir essentially is, is a person that gives good tidings and is happy and, and gives people good news. And the Prophet do not give people news that you know pushes them away. And so the Prophet is essentially giving us a, 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 something that we should all take care of, which is in our interactions with people, we should be Bashir and Bashara. And Bashara in, in Arabic actually, Mubashirat, um, is used to indicate you know wind that you feel coming from a direction where this where the rain's going to come from. So before the rain comes, you can usually tell. That rain's about to come because you have this kind of a specific type of wind that comes in the Middle East. It's very clear that you have this kind of cool wind coming, and it's just at the at the precipice of this, you know, onslaught of rain that comes down and and, and replenishes the earth. So, Mubashirat has all these positive, you know, you know, positive, you know, kind of full honored qualities that the Prophet was Al Bashir. He was the one that. Um, gave good good tidings, but I think the only thing we need to recognize here is, you know, the person that gives good good news always gets the news from somewhere. You know that if you if you're giving good news of something, like imagine the, the chancellor of the exchequer is giving good news of a uh, hundred thousand pounds each. He's in a, in a cabinet meeting which we have no access to, which is telling us that's what's been decided. Do you understand? So the process of being Bashir, you can't just say, look, he's just tells people good things. He must know something. You know, From if he's giving good glad tidings of paradise and, and and the pleasures of paradise, or he is telling us of the 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 company in paradise that we will have, or the or the nature of religion in its true sense of being something that you know bring gives people life. Essentially, he's bringing that knowledge from somewhere that we have no access to. That he knows all the all these things of the unseen from the angelic realm, from directly from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, which gives him the prerogative and the ability, and the and the choice to do that. And so then, you know, Bashir is not just glad tidings for us; the person giving the glad tidings is honored in the eyes of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala as well. So, you know, you have to then honor the person that brings glad tidings as being a person. That is, you know, very, very clearly honored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why, you know, it's such a contrast between people nowadays that, you know, like the Prophet said, like the hadith of Abu Hayr radiallahu anhu, he said, Man qala ahlakan nas, ahlakahum. Whoever says that people are destroyed and people are the end of people, people are just like useless. Prophet said, Fahua ahlakahum. He is or she is the most destroyed. Or no, it actually doesn't mean it means that ahlakahum means that he destroyed them. Like that's the, the person who says that is the reason why this is happening. And one narration is ahlakuhum. That person is the worst of them, the most destroyed of them. In other words, it was never the son of the Prophet asked him to go about telling people that everyone's destroyed and everyone's terrible and everyone is coming to the end of their, you know, 
age of responsibility and they have nothing but you know poor um, a poor, poor future the problem is always you know if you look at how he dealt with his friends and his enemies he was always bashir he was never nadir his nadara which was his warning was always to get people to come back and the problem never lost hope with people and you know you know without, within all the difficulties that we do face in life for example it is always very important that we 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 show the face of bashara which is a face of good tidings and glad tidings you know more than we show this face of nadara which is to be a warner or a person that is telling people to be wary assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah mustafa